This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. On today's episode, we are chatting with school psychologist Bridie Huggins. Bridie has worked as a psychologist in a school setting for over 15 years. When working with younger children, she understands the importance of involving parents and enjoys delivering programs such as Tuning Into Kids, which focuses on an emotion coaching approach to parenting. When working with adolescents, Bridie uses an eclectic approach, understanding the importance of rapport building, as it is often a young person's first experience seeing a psychologist. In this episode, you'll hear Bridie talk about the impact schools can have on managing a young person's mental health, as well as the complexity of working within a system when supporting a young person. She also shares with us the importance, but also challenges, of setting boundaries when working with young people at school. Let's get started. Hello, today we have the lovely Bridie Huggins, who is a school psychologist and a Dear friend of Tori's, did you guys go to school together? No. No. Doing a gap year in England in the year 2000, a long time ago, and then became friends doing that and then ended up living in a share house together for many years Mm. following that and studying psychology. That is amazing. So Bridie and Tori have known each other for a long time and subsequently I was then introduced to Bridie and Bridie has worked a lot with us, not just as a clinic, but as clinicians in referring students to us and working together with the students that she works with too. So we have her wonderful insights in how to support students at school, not just with OCD, but also just generally as well. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So just as an extension of what we were talking about earlier, tell us a little bit about yourself, what got you into psychology, what led you to where you are today? Well, Tori and I probably talked quite a bit on our gap year together I think and when we were trying to work out what we were going to do and then yeah we both got into psychology probably motivated each other a lot through university Mm. as well because those years were tough and long and I always wanted to work I kind of was thinking about teaching for a little bit so educational psychology was a pathway that I was quite interested in because it aligned the wanting to work with developmentally from kind of kindergarten to year 12 and that real developmental aspect and working in a school and seeing really in the systems model where you can really see and help children in the school setting and then with families and I quite like that way of working. I think it's really important to involve families and systems, especially when you're working with children, isn't it? Like a lot of the time, especially working in private practice, our supervisees often grapple with that need of knowing they need to include family and siblings and that sort of stuff. But how to navigate that can be really tricky. I often envy you, Bridie, and other school psychologists because being in private practice, 
yes, we have a privileged position where we get to do clinical intervention, but I envy your position of seeing the students every day, having access, the beauty of the moments of drop-in where they come in and you can work with them in the moment as opposed to sort of in a more intellectual way when they come to therapy and you're imagining what they might do if the moment was to arise, that they were panicking or struggling or feeling low, that sort of in the moment as well as I remember you saying something so splendid once upon a time, which was that you have the privilege of seeing students both at their worst but at their best as well and that you see these sort of you get to work with students like a really rounded way and I've always envied that. Yes, I love that part of my work. And as you know, I did a dapple in private practice, but that was the bit that I missed out on the most was the school system where you could see that a student is really struggling, but then they're also in a school musical and you get to watch them in the school musical be someone completely different from what you see in that one-on-one setting and involve parents and have a real understanding of their world, which is hard to have when you're seeing in a private practice setting. It's just a different situation. But I think involving the school, because the school is such an important system in that young person's world, is really great to have relationships with teachers and like head of the school and give that overview and to really advocate for young people within a school system is really great too. It's true because there are so many different aspects of a young person's life, aren't there? Yes, and to help with one system can then help with another system. Yeah. Which can be really beneficial. Thinking about young people with mental health difficulties, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like for a student, not from an intervention perspective, but just the experience of a student at school? I mean, what it's like for a student who has OCD or depression or is having panic attacks, what it's like for them to be in the school environment, juggling life, juggling academics. It's really tough because the school academic system is pretty restrictive in what the demands are, I suppose, especially in BCE. But there is wiggle room. There is always wiggle room. And you can see students who might come to school or even have a lot of difficulty getting to school because of OCD or depressive symptoms or whatever they're going through. And having a plan to just even get them inside the school gate can be really significant. And then I'm thinking of a couple of students that we have at the moment that you need to adapt and modify programs around them and flexibility is key and constantly reviewing and seeing what works and what doesn't work and how we can engage people. And it might be for some people it's co-curricular activities like the netball or plays that they want to be in drama or for others it might be a particular subject because of that teacher and it's really utilizing what you can around a student knowing that they're not in the best place right now but if you can give them little nuggets of hope to kind of get to the next little bit and then build upon that and then build upon that but I think I've noticed more recently the need to involve a lot of other people around that young person because it can be such a tough time for them. So you kind of need to get a teacher on side who they identify as an advocate or a particular mum or dad or a sibling or someone that can be an advocate for them or to help them moderate what's going on for them and to guide them through a really challenging time. Or a friend. Like peers are huge at this age as well, but it's constantly adapting for what's needed. Yeah. 
schools are tough for that too because it's they're pretty rigid places a lot of the time and they look at academic and they look at what's going on and yeah so you have to kind of be quite the advocate for a young person sometimes. Do you think that a lot of the time the school environment can kind of make or break a young person's experience when they're grappling with these sorts of things depending on how supportive and flexible they can be because you're right I think a lot of the times they can be really rigid environments and sometimes it can work against the students needs and make it harder for them to recover. I agree totally yeah I'm thinking of another student that really tried hard to get back into the school system and the school just wasn't the place for that young person it actually really increased their anxiety so much that they weren't able to learn anything because they were so flooded with anxiety. So for them, it was really thinking about what alternative programs are for that young person. And just because they're enrolled at the school doesn't mean that's the best place for them. It might be a different school setting or it might be a different setting completely. And we probably found that out through the many lockdowns that some students thrive by that remote learning kind of way of learning and some people really struggle with it. So everyone's different in how they learn. I've been thinking a lot, I think, in anticipation of chatting with you today. And I think also because Selena are in the middle of a one of our group therapy programs with teens, so we're hearing a lot mm. from them at the moment. But I've been thinking a lot about some of the compulsions like rereading, rewriting. We've got a number of the teens in the group talking about that right now, about just how impactful that is on their learning because they are missing content in class. They are slow to get their homework done. They are distracted all the time. They can't focus. They um, disengage because they don't even want to give it a go because they know how long it's going to take. It just sounds like such a tough experience, especially if you're watching your peers sort of move on with their academics, if you're falling behind in class. Yeah. How do schools support students in those instances? I mean, we talk a lot about a modified learning plan. Don't worry about homework. I mean, what does this mean for students? What's the impact academically? I've learned this over the years, that the lower years of learning, you can get by with modifying quite a bit. And if the school is flexible enough and if it helps that young person, sometimes when you modify things, it actually is quite disengaging for a young person. So it's a really tricky balance. But for a lot of young people, say, who have need to reread over and over again, like, yes, that definitely would require some modified programs so that they could get some assistance in whatever ways or they might need a space away from their peers so they don't become distracted by others when they're trying to read content or whatever it might be. So it's adapting to what that person needs. But I don't think by year 11 and 12, that's when it gets tough because you can't really modify it as much. So yes, a special consideration where you get 15 minutes extra for reading time and things like that. But it's kind of building up to that, isn't it, in a way of modifying things when they're younger and learning those skills to be able to learn in an environment of a school setting and then realising that the modifications need to be a bit more rigid later on. But then there's other options too for VCE. Like you don't have to do a scored VCE. There's so many options out there to do unscored VCE and to show you learning in other ways. And there is another program that's coming that I just found out about, VCAL, but more really hands-on and really applicable and universities are taking 
it up as well to have a really lovely stream. So for kids that aren't that real academic focus or it's not their thing at that time, then it gives them options into other avenues because I think we do put a lot of pressure on students to kind of meet this mould where there can be a lot adapted around it that a lot of people aren't aware of, me included. That sounds really cool. So just for our international listeners, BCE is like senior high school. And in the final year, our kids sit final exams and have to get a certain percentage score to then enter university slash college, I guess. <laughs> but VCAL is almost like a hands-on, more of a practical, yeah. yeah. So they might learn some skills in carpentry or electrician work or some, like technology, beauty, hairdressing, beauty, hairdressing, Child yeah, care. So, yeah, yeah. So it's equivalent of like what we used to call TAFE really, but it's now done in a school environment. But I think there's some schools that don't have capacity still align with some of the TAFE colleges where they can go and learn something yeah, about those apprenticeships. From year 10, yeah. yeah. Yeah, from year 10 onwards. And then that way they're still getting their certificate of finishing high school, but they're not necessarily then needing or wanting or not interested in going off to university for that higher education. Yeah, I think it's also... Because it's not for no, everyone either. No, it's not. Yeah. And I think sometimes schools assume that a student or a parent want them to go down that academic road. And if a young person is struggling, it's good to ask the question to the school, what can we do to modify a program or what can we do to best support our child at the moment? Because there are options out there, but parents might not necessarily know what the options are. I appreciate the perspective of encouraging students to do the academic stream to keep options open in case they want to do university. But what I think we see sometimes is that that comes at the expense of mental health. Yeah. And that the emphasis is on preparing a student for their future, but that they're not okay in the present. And I often think, what is the point of preparing a student for the future if right now they're not okay? And I think about that, particularly I think about the student and their experience at school. It's great, great if they're keeping up, if they're attending school and they're kind of getting the job done. But if they're not okay while they're doing it, if, if they have to work incredibly hard to even just get their homework done, if the experience is grueling, then is it really okay? Is it really in the student's best interest? I think sometimes I personally think there is a better approach to help a young person deal with their mental health first and then because there are so many pathways there are so many options you can sit year 12 certificate as a mature age student it does not all have to be done by the time you turn 18 you have many many educational opportunities so if you need to take a time out it is okay you can even do it over two or three years I think if you do like just a couple of subjects at a time, yep, or through distance education. Like if learning online is your thing, you can do it at home. I think you're right, Tori. Like as soon as someone's mental health is suffering, as Bridie described, they're not engaging in learning, but also they're missing out on their social and emotional development, which is so important at that time mm-hmm. in those adolescent years because that helps them then gain a sense of confidence. It helps them to separate from in a healthy way from parents and develop a sense of identity and a sense of self-worth, which equally is important to set them up for their future rather than just sitting exams or whatnot or handing in assignments. Yeah, so being involved in those extra co-curricular activities could be so important outside of school or in school even because there's options to talk about in school as well, even if they're not attending school. 
Right, I was thinking before while you were talking about when a young person is struggling, particularly if it's with something quite significant like a really acute episode of OCD or a really significant depression about that wraparound support. So recruiting a peer, recruiting a teacher, head of year level, head of house, those sorts of things, well-being support as well. How much does it differ from one school to the other based on what resources they have? I know that some schools are better resourced. Some schools have different attitudes towards well-being. I'm thinking about from the position of, say, a private psychologist who's working with a young person mm. and is preparing to make recommendations or to talk with the school about what that student's needs might be. What are the kinds of things that this private psychologist should be holding in mind when talking with that school about what is and isn't possible, what can and can't be advocated for, that sort of thing? I think more recently in the last 10 years, schools have realised how important child's wellbeing is and they're much more willing to take advice and recommendations from a private psychologist that the young person is working with. But like you said, resources have a big influence on how much they can support at school. But teachers, in my experience, even working at some schools that didn't have perhaps the resources of some of the other schools that I've worked at, will still make time. They always seem to have a wellbeing coordinator or head of year level, those kind of approaches that they do want what's best for that young person and they will want to talk to someone who has that understanding. And I think they um, really value the expertise of someone who works with the young person in a really professional capacity. So it can be hard because timing of school personnel as well as private practitioners often don't align and that can be really tough I think because they're both incredibly busy but even what I find best now is even just to shoot an email to the private practitioner and say give me your availability, like three different spots and work around it kind of thing because there's always time and people do want to make the time to talk. But it's so valuable having that input from the private psychologist. I know I personally work very closely with quite a few private psychologists who work with some of the more tricky situations that kids are currently going through. So we liaise quite a bit and it might be a phone call when we can, but also might just be a quick update by email to let them know as well what's going on or when you see them next, this is what it's been happening at school. Or if there's any recommendations that you can make in terms of this, this and this, that would be wonderful. Those kind of things are really helpful as a psychologist in a school. What's some of the best recommendations do you reckon like what are some of the most helpful tips often it's kind of aligning where we're sitting with things and often it's talking about what is actually happening on the ground at school for example yesterday I was talking to an external psych recommended that the student that we know wear noise cancelling headphones in class and that was such an easy thing to follow up on because I was like, yep, leave it with me. I'll follow up with the head of house and we can sort that out. No worries at all. And a simple email went out and permission was granted for her to wear noise cancelling headphones because at the moment that's what she needs. So things like that and to go through someone to make it happen really quickly because I found that hard working privately, just knowing who to contact And once you can contact someone and have that person and liaise with them, then things can get sorted quite quickly. Almost like being the advocate on the ground kind of thing as well. Exactly. That's kind of what it feels like. In a school setting, I might see that young person 
when they come in for respite or they might just want to touch base and having a tough day. But I won't necessarily go into anything therapeutically with them. It's like have a cup of tea, let's talk about what so-and-so has taught you or any of the strategies that might be working. Let's do a grounding technique or something like that that we know that you've been working on. But it will be more just be that support person and liaise with the external psych but not do the therapy on campus because there's so many so many other people to see as well that if they're seeing an external psych it's like great (laughs) (laughs) but I guess that frees you up to be a sounding board a touch bait like someone who you can just check in with and it does it allows you to then free up your thinking to then also care for the other students that you've got to care for as well which is equally important Yes. And otherwise, I do find it's very confusing for the young person if they've got two psychologists working with them as well. It could be quite confusing. So it's quite good to have those boundaries. I know as a private practitioner, I really enjoy speaking with schools too, because I really enjoy the insights. I really benefit from the insights about how that young person is functioning in school what their daily life actually looks like, whether they're able to put things into practice or not, where the barriers are, what stresses might be going on for the young person that I'm not aware of. There's so much insight that then I can bring back into the individual work. I find it really helps the individual therapy as well. Yeah, even from my perspective, I'll often email head of house and say, how do they actually present in the classroom? because what they're telling me doesn't really fit with what is presenting it at school. So it's good to know what is actually happening and friendships and those kind of things, how they're actually connecting. That communication is so important. Yeah. And there are things that as an individual practitioner, when I think about some of the students I've worked with, particularly where there are social difficulties, the school psychologist and the teachers are so well positioned to support a young person because they're there on the ground. They know the other students. They know the complexities of the peer dynamics at the time. Mm. So, you know, we can work on social skills, anxieties behind these sorts of things, but then I'm not in a position with their peer group to be able to really help facilitate anything. I can just sort of make recommendations and leave it with the young person to follow up. But I think that's a great delineation of roles, I think, for people to be working on different things. Yeah. And it's quite important to clarify that sometimes, I think, too, because sometimes that can be tricky. Brides, what are some of the most complex aspects of working in the school setting? It's a complex place. It is. It can't be easy. Yeah. Schools are seriously complicated places. And yeah, when you think about how much time a young person spends at school, From the age of five until they're 18, generally, it's a long time to be in one setting. But schools are kind of a bit of, it feels like at the moment, they're a bit of a one-stop shop for a lot of things. And I feel like teachers are doing an incredible job and they work so hard. And the expectations, even since I've been in schools, have just grown and grown and grown and grown. So no wonder they are feeling burnt out and we saw that with the pandemic and people a lot of leaving and so I do feel like because of that and because a young person's world is really in a school system a lot of it comes to the school as well so complications and complex family dynamics can really be brought out in a school system and often we're working with a young person but there is often a reason why that young person 
is quite distressed or not coping so well and not attending school, not attending classes. And often the family system has a lot to do with that as well. So it's working with the complexities of a family in order to help that young person and perhaps just being aware of what goes on behind the scenes in terms of those complex situations and a young person's mental health at the forefront is always at the forefront of a school and how they are going but the parent involvement can be really complicated as well so working with those different systems with the external professionals with the families with the young person can be really challenging and I'm thinking of a case right now that we're currently dealing with (laughs) that there is so much behind the scenes work that is going on with it and everyone is spending hours upon hours in order to help and support this young person because everyone has these really good intentions but it's complicated so it's just kind of recognizing that sometimes I got caught up in, in private practice as well but thinking I'm seeing it in this world but there's a lot of other things that are going on that are making it more complex that often the school does work with and deal with and also the next layer of legalities and everything else that goes on board with that too and who to contact and how to contact and what's best for the young person but what who's enrolled and how do we support everyone who's paying for the fee like there's so much to think about but this young person is always there in the middle tricky it's a juggling act that's for sure yeah and it's not easy it's not easy for anyone parents included it's stressful comes to mind you know tricky stressful you have to be mindful of holding all of these different people in mind and what their needs are and all of that sort of stuff juggling all of that is really challenging yeah and that self-care part of it that has to come with it as well that help seeking profession probably aren't the best at teachers included oh no yeah Yeah. (laughs) and having those boundaries around where to stop and when to email at 11 o'clock at night because it's on your mind and when to say no, that can wait till the morning. Those kind of things is so important as well. Like that Absolutely. self-care is it's just a recipe for burnout otherwise. Yeah, we're not very good at that sometimes, no. are we? No, we are not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Speaking of which, Bridie, what is something you now know that you wish you had known earlier in your career? I think boundaries. I'm learning and still learning about boundaries, but I feel like I'm getting better and better at it as I get older. And for example, we've just had to close our books at school and put a wait list on because our thing was always, if there was a self-referral of a young person, you would always accept it. However, there's just so many referrals at the moment and there's only so much you can do. And if you're completely burnt out, you're not helping anyone. So it's better to put those boundaries around you to protect yourself and the people that you're working with. And it's okay to say no. And sometimes saying no is beneficial in many ways because you're there every day and you're not burnt out and you're able to help and support in a lot better ways. Yeah, I think that's something Celine and I talk about a lot too is that in trying to help everyone, you actually dilute the care that you're providing, you're not actually helping anyone, yourself included. Sometimes you have to put those parameters around the work that you do so that those that you are engaged with can actually benefit from the care that you provide. 
it really impacts that continuity of care, which does not exist otherwise. And that's not fair for anybody. Yeah, because what's the point if you touch base with someone for 15 minutes, don't have the time to follow up on any of the recommendations, you don't see them again for another term. I mean, what would be the point? Yeah. The young person feels let down, the family's disappointed, nothing changes. What's the point? Exactly. You're dissatisfied at work? Yeah. I like what you said before as well about how you're still learning. (laughs) I think we're all still learning. I mean, that's the best part of our role too, isn't it? That we're constantly learning and adapting. Absolutely. The other question that we ask all of our guests, Bridie, is about intrusive thoughts. Because as you know, in OCD, that one of the main symptomatology is the power of the intrusive thought. And one of the things we talk about a lot is that everybody gets intrusive thoughts. They're not exclusive to OCD. I know for one, I ate a cherry the other day and I just you got this intrusive thought that the stone was stuck in my throat and it just persisted and I had all these physiological sort of symptoms attached to it. They're very powerful things. So anyway, we normalize intrusive thoughts here and we ask all of our guests if they would be willing to share an intrusive thought that they've had. Sure. So many. One just came up. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in um, wearing the mask, wearing a mask at like in counselling and I have this thing about like getting the cotton. I'm like, I'm swallowing the cotton. And then I start coughing and I'm like, and now they're going to think I have COVID and now we're in this session together and I just can't get out of my head. And even like last year, and our school nurse was like, just take a sip of water. It will be okay because oh. I just, like you're allowed to take it off for water and then I'm like gulp the whole water going, oh, well, the cotton is in my throat because just got to such a thing. Oh, bright. <laughs> it's wearing. Yeah. And then it just yeah. becomes this intrusive thought that then all I could think about every time I put on the mask was, going to get in my throat again and I'm going to cough again yeah that's a very annoying it one it is a very yeah. annoying one especially I thought we wouldn't be wearing masks as long as we have so <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah oh dear well thank you so much for sharing that with us yeah, no worries I've got lots of faults that I can share <laughs> <laughs> interesting thoughts anything yeah <laughs> And look, and thank you for joining us today, Bridie. I've always admired the work that you do in schools. I mean, the school psychologists are such, they add such value, you know, your support to the staff as well as the students. You are the point of contact between private practitioners and families. You are just an essential part of the psychology community. And I think it's a wonderful thing that school psychologists do. Thank you for coming on and sharing what you do and your insights into the work and the experience for students. We're really grateful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au all one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>